0: Today's episode is brought to you by our listeners and supporters over on our Buy Me A Coffee page. Thank you all for the support by giving our show a listen, leaving a review or comment, following us on our Twitter, or sharing our show with your friends and family. If you want to support the show further, check out our BMAC page for more information. Link will be in the description. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you all so much for the love and support. And now, on to the show. For his podcast, I am your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. In our last episode, we discussed the overall story of Ultimate Custom Night, or UCN for short, as a continuation of the story of Freddy Fazbear's Pizzeria Simulator, or FNAF 6. As we get a metaphorical view of William Apton being tortured, whether it be hell, purgatory, or being trapped in his own mind, as he dies by the hand of his victims as his MERS machinations, only to be reborn again in the same place, to die again, over and over and over again, by the hands of Golden Freddy. If I'm to be perfectly honest, I really did wish this was the end of William after story, as there's no better end point than this current hell for him. I think at least it's the perfect purgatory for William, his narcissistic moniker, I always come back, perverted in this new world where he will experience and feel the anguish of dying relentlessly, but never obtain the sweet release of death's finality. He may never truly die, but he will never truly come back again, either. That's the thing about Scott Coffin's writing that, I'll be frank, I kind of miss in the post-Scott era of FNAF games. How he was always able to cleverly call back to his previous attributes of his story, despite how limited scope the nap had. He was always able to create Easter eggs like this that resonate with you on an emotional level. Scott has a clever way of utilizing his past work in a way that echoes the previous entries on a thematic level, which always gives them a sense of validity. His subsequent games are not trying to run off and do their own thing in this world, no, they are unnaturally part of it. After all, wouldn't that feel off now without William Apton said the purple guy? Wouldn't it feel strange every night guard was a random 9-to-5 worker instead of Michael? All the tiny little reflections and echoes of what happened before and what is to come help solidify the story and mystify the supernatural elements. For how ironic is it that the game that chronologically starts the franchise a story of a nightmare which a young boy can escape from and dies over and over and over again, only for that same nightmare to repeat. How ironic is it that Scott's final chapter in that story is an epilogue in which the man who has created all the chaos and misery must also experience that same pain of dying over and over in a living nightmare he can't escape from. It's like poetry. It rhymes. The beginning reflects the end, and each stanza in between rhymes with the previous ones creating a consistent melodic flow to the story. Today's episode isn't going to be about that, unfortunately. FNAF, at its core, is also a story of mysteries, and UCN is no different in that regard. Some of these mysteries do venture into that experimentation category, so let's finish up our tour and see where other truths can be found in the dark hallways with no exits. This is episode 13, The One You Shouldn't Have Killed.
1: Now I will tell you a story about a young boy who lived on a farm. The boy lived with his older brother on the outskirts of town, where they raised chickens in a small hen house. One day, a fox crept in and stole a chicken, the boys thought nothing of it and simply placed a new lock 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 on the door. The next day, the fox somehow got inside again and ate five chickens in the hen house. The boy, not wanting to see his flock be massacred, decided on laying a trap for the fox. The next night, he left the hen house door wide open and placed a bear trap near the door. The boy smiled widely when he heard the sound of jagged metal go off in the middle of the night, and ran down from his room filled with pride that he was able to make the animal who had taken the lives of his birds but his smile faded and his face went blank when he saw a trail of blood leaving the hen house. It was raining that night, and the water would soon wash away the trail, so the boy decided to follow. As the boy followed the trail, listening to the sounds of thunder crackling in the sky, he began to contemplate what he was going to do when he found the fox. He considered locking him in a cage. But he realized the fox was too slippery and could escape, he considered taking him somewhere else in the woods, but then he would just be tossing the problematic animal to another. He even considered ripping out the fox's teeth to make sure he couldn't hurt another innocent bird again. However, it turned out that none of those methods would be necessary, as when the boy approached the end of the trail of blood, another explosion of thunder echoed in the sky, and the boy's brother walked out of the fox's cave carrying his corpse by the tail. A trail of blood leaked from his legs and a small bullet hole could be seen on his forehead. The boy had mistaken the last bit of thunder for the sound of his brother's revolvers. The older of the two said you were only taking a half-measure to the problem, a partial solution. But when dealing with life and death, there can be no half-measures.
0: In between your various nights during UCN, your game may momentarily pause for an intermission break. I briefly mentioned these intermission breaks in our previous episode, as it is a reference to the overall arcade aesthetic that UCN utilizes. After every 700 congruent points earned, that's you a cutscene from two different, and I mean widely different, stories. Now, I want to preface, I don't know why Scott chose these stories or why he wanted to use these particular… art directions for these stories. Additionally, these stories are the pinnacle of possible red herrings. I admit, there's no fully clear way of looking into these stories, no clear one-to-one with any aspect of the lore to get a clear indication of what they are supposed to mean, or if they are to mean anything at all and are just short stories that are meant for fun and laughs. The stories are indeed ridiculous and over-the-top, even in FNAF standards, if you can believe it. Because of this, I think it's important to adhere to the advice of the wise words of the scholar and philosopher, Mr. Hippo.
1: Not every story has to have significance, you know? Sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes a story is just a story. If you try to read into every little thing and find meaning in everything anyone says, you'll just drive yourself crazy. Had a friend do it once, wasn't pretty, we talked about it for years, and not only that, but you'll likely end up believing something you shouldn't believe and thinking something you shouldn't think, or or assuming something you shouldn't assume, you know? Sometimes, I said, uh, a story is, is just a story, so just be quiet for one second of your life and eat your sandwich, okay?
0: So, please keep in mind that we are entering very speculative territory this episode. And what I'm about to say are my interpretations of the two UCN intermission storylines. With that said, let's be in. Vengeance is the first story intermission of UCN and follows a rather simple, if not strange, plot. The intermission plays as a cheesy Japanese samurai movie, starring Freddy Fazbear as the White Samurai trying to dispense justice while Foxy the Pirate plays the villain with Mangle as his sidekick. The show is even voiced with Indian Japanese, with English subtitles provided for translation. Freddy referred to as simply The Bear. Has been in a constant battle with the Fox. Fox him, and Pirate. And attempting to make right and obtain vengeance against the Fox for embarrassing him in their previous conflicts. Every week he plans to raid the Fox's dojo, but the Fox is too cunning and clever and will always know what the bear is plan. Not saying that the bear's plans are a work of strategic genius in the first place. In fact, most of are naive in principle. He starts out. Fair enough. The attack him at night and on his birthday. But after those plans fail, it silly dawns how futile the bear's efforts are, as every single plan becomes worse than the last. These plans include playing a flute to cause him to go to sleep, placing a dead fish in his pockets, and coming down the chimney as Santa Claus. Each time the bear tries, it always fails, for the fox always has a trap laid out. After every defeat, however, the fox does not kill the bear, but instead gives him a form of punishment, such as doing his laundry, cooking his breakfast, or hanging up his Christmas decorations. Why are there so many Christmas references? After several weeks have gone by, the fox grows weary of the conflict and instead chooses to go on vacation to relieve himself of the mundane the mangle to take care of the house And feed the dog Only to remember that the mangle is the dog The bear however Does not give up hope After his adversary has left For while all his attempts may have been failures And the fox leaving the valley Could be seen as victory He understands that his destiny Is to find and destroy the fox once and for all He will hunt down the fox Wherever he may crawl and hide to Just right after he finishes A bull. Bo- Hot soup. The end. Wait, wait, the end. Wait, wait. What? Wait, no. Wait, what? Wait, how does? How does? How does anything? I mean. <sighs> okay. Um. So that was a doozy, huh? Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Uh. So what did any of that mean? Especially considering that it was probably one of the most ridiculous things that ever to occur in this franchise. Then again, isn't that part of the charm of FNAF? That it's a horror series that it isn't afraid to laugh at itself? Comedy and horror really are closer than one usually realizes. And I won't deny, this story is funny, it's full of Scott's wacky humor. But is there anything about this that we can apply to FNAF's story overall, any lore to gather out of this, or is this just a story for the sake of being a story? Personally, I believe the latter. In fact, to go on record, I believe that neither of these cutscene stories, these intermission stories, have anything to do with FNAF's overall story, but I do want to play devil's advocate here. So let's say that we knew for a fact that this story did have hidden meaning behind it. What would it be? This is a stretch. The closest story I could come up with is Bear Vengeance being a metaphor, a visual metaphor for Golden Freddy trying to capture William Afton. Now why Golden Freddy in particular? Why not Henry or Michael? Well, simply because the usual symbolic uses of the characters don't work in the story. For those of you who don't know, most members of the Afton family have a Fazbear character associated with them. For a quick rundown, William of course has Bonnie, and Elizabeth Afton has Circus Baby. But equally so, Michael is associated heavily with Foxy, and his younger brother, the Crying Child, is associated heavily with Fredbear and Golden Freddy. But these being common signifiers and links for these characters, shouldn't Michael be Foxy in this scenario? Well no, because as we have gone over multiple times in this story, Michael isn't a villain or a bad guy. He may view himself as such at the death of his younger brother, but his actions afterwards speak of a braver man trying to atone for his past sins. Now could Samurai Freddy be representing his younger brother, and Foxy being portrayed as Michael as a bad guy be a symbolic flashback to... When he used to torment his brother at the Afton household. Mango is in the story, after all, and we do know Elizabeth had a fun time foxy plush tour that was pulled apart in her room as the scene of FNAF 4, akin to the Mango's origin. Perhaps the story is a metaphor for the early years of the Afton household.
2: Uh,
0: I don't think so. For one, two characters who have heavy association with Fazbear mascots are now suddenly. Changing their intended character links for one story seems like a stretch. And Not to mention if this was the case, why is Mike the one outlier who still uses his original character in especially a way that doesn't betray him in a way that we are familiar with? More so, why would we need to betray him like this in the first place? We know Michael was a bully who acted out of line in FNAF 4. His father's abuse and neglect for being negative influences that were turning Michael into a miniature version of his father. And the disappearance of his little sister and the apparent lack of a mother figure is causing him to act out much more statistically than he should ever have. If we were to go back and look into how he behaved, one would think we would get a much more in-depth look at the Afton family household as a whole. Not just this supposed brother rivalry between Mike and his younger brother that was never previously established. Not even Henry truly makes sense as a representation of the Samurai Freddy. While there exist many characters like the puppet or Michael who hunted down William Afton, Henry was one who was introduced late into the franchise. He's part of the beginning and only reappears at the end. Trying to hint that he was always hunting down with William in the background is a very strange way to explain away where Henry was in the forty years that the Fredbear down. And what I think Scott wanted to be more direct in an explanation for it, the very at least more direct than this. If this story is an interpretation of someone hunting down William, Golden Freddy is the most likely answer. Simply being that early on, Michael was concerned more about freeing the souls of the MCI victims and the puppet had its own hands full before that as well. Golden Freddy as a phantom-esque entity had more free will and power to take action than the other victims of William Afton. The story would also give precedence over Henry's monologue in the HRY223 file in FPS during the insanity ending. Henry claims that William was able to learn trick his victims again, in reference to him tearing the vessels of the original Fazbear band, as seen in Fnaf 3's minigames. games. Seeing a story in which Golden Freddy is always trying to get William, but he has always has a countermeasure in place to make sure that his victims, even after coming back to life, can't touch him, is very in character. While struggling quickly in FNAP 3, William is shown to know what caused the spirits of his victims to tick. In The Silver Eyes, the first novel in the non-canon novel trilogy, William explains to Charlie and her friends why they are in danger while locked in the abandoned Freddy Fazbear's Pizza while he is safe. While one of Charlie's friends, John, questions why he thinks he is safe when he too is trapped inside with them, William responds with, quote, When it gets dark, they will awaken children's spirits will rise they will kill you I'll just walk out in the morning stepping over your corpses one by one they don't remember they've forgotten the dead do forget all they know is that you are here with them trying to take away their happiest day you are intruders you are grown-ups. That last part of the quote is in reference to how he knows the children will no longer be able to accurately perceive him while he's in his spring Bonnie suit. Because when he wears it, he is, quote, one of them, end quote. The bear's vouch to follow the fox wherever he goes could be a subtle way of signifying how Golden Freddy won't find peace even after William Acton is gone. He will continue to hunt and fight him. continue you try and try again until William Acton suffers? for his crimes, no matter how many times he slips through his fingers or humiliates him when he fails. But like I said, this story is one of those that seem to be more for the sake of comedy rather than symbolic storytelling. After all, the leaps of logic ones I had to make to reach a conclusion are quite large, and the to of the mango being part of the story has really no easy answer. Like I said, this could just be a case of the story being… Uh, Just a story. Anyway, that's one weird anime show done. Surely the second one won't be as weird.
2: Dear Diary, Yesterday was so amazing, and I met such a wonderful guy But I don't think it was meant to last for my heart belongs to another He's so amazing and strong and so so cute I've been thinking about him all day, and I think he's really into me, too He's the only one for me. I just know it and I know just how to get him. Look at that top hat. That amazing top hat. He'll be mine by the end of the day. I just know it. I told him that I needed help with my homework. But once he's there, I'll have him. And once I have him, he'll be mine forever. There is only one thing that could possibly go wrong.
0: Why am I here? Just to suffer. Is this truly what I'm destined to do in life? To talk about the magic of FNAF, to remark about its amazing storytelling, its symbolism, its comprehension. But then to be thrown this, this, Anime Weeboo nonsense. What is a meant to do when Michelangelo paints the ceiling of Sistine's Chapel, only for God to laugh in his face? Okay, yeah, okay, yes. Yeah. So the second intermission storyline, strangely enough, is another parody of the anime genre. Once again, don't know why Scott chose to do this. Uh, this time, a riff on the high school romance drama, with a little bit of poking fun at the yandere trope often found in said genre called. Toy Chica, The High School Years The plot is pretty straightforward, just like the last one. Over the course of the intermissions, Toy Chica starts each day at high school with a new crush after the previous one didn't work out. Reminds of trying to win over her sudden new crush become more extreme after every episode, with less and less appealing reasons for her to go after her newfound love interest. Oh, and it is heavily implied that each crush is murdered in some fashion, because Torchika is playing into the Yandere trope. For those who don't know what a Yandere is, from, and I can't believe I'm about to cite this on my show, but from the Dairy Types fandoms wiki, quote, Yandere is a Japanese archetype used to define a character whose love, adoration, and devotion is so strong that it is expressed as an excessive obsession and possessiveness. They are often seen as characters that are crazy and love with someone. They become so attached to their love interest so that it's impossible to let go. They probe the deepest recesses of their love interest heart so as to more perfectly form their greatest self within their love interest. Some will go as far as to behave in immortal and troubling ways. They will not care about the negative effects that their behaviors can have to others, including their love interest, because they only care about their own feelings. And and that is, in fact, the storyline of Toy Chica the high school years. Each episode she finds a new love, only to kill them the next day. I will say, though, it is hilarious how she justifies each of her schemes to get her victims of in love with her. Uh, my personal favorites being setting sending her crush's house on fire, so they come running into her arms. Or, and this is all true, put a bag over their head. Hit them with a shovel. Okay and lie that she was trying to protect them because, and I swear to God this is true, she tells them that Balloon Boy put a hit out on them. Didn't know Balloon Boy was a mafioso. Uh, The final intermission episode ends with which sitting against a tree in the park, concluding in her diary that her quest was for naught, as she was left with nothing but a broken heart. As her backpack lays open, revealing trophies of her past lovers, including the Marionette's mask, Foxy's hook, and Brace's top hat. She states that tomorrow is another day, and she will not give up hope. Once again, I will reiterate that I believe that none of these stories have any relevance to the plot and are just there for Scott the troll fan base, as he often loves to do, but I once again am going to play devil's advocate here and enter back the theory world for this. So, like the previous Intermission stories. If we pretend we know for a fact that this story had a deeper underlying meaning, what could it possibly be? Well, unlike the previous one, the interpretation here seems pretty obvious if there is one. This story has the possibility of giving it a bit more context to William Afton's murders in the MCI, specifically how he was able to do it without getting caught. The biggest clue to this isn't the fact that Toy Chiga clearly kills in a sense and keeps trophies, but rather how Toy Chiga explains how she's going to lure and liar victims into her embrace. One of her methods is even beat for beat one of the most infamous scenarios William used for killing one of his victims, that being the infamous dead dog story for Susie. As previously established in FFPS in the furry Maze game, which was previously discussed in episode eleven, now let me tell you a story. The method of William after using the grief that young Susie, who there go on to possess Chica, felt after the death of her dog to lure her away by claiming that he never died, and that he could show her dog is alive and perfectly fine. It's one of the darkest parts of the franchise, and so practically use an example of William's deplorable acts of Manipulating his victims in the games, novels, and even the novella series. And it is also reused line for line in Twitch to the high school years.
2: I told him that someone ran over his dog in front of my house. But once he’s there, I'll entice him with warm cookies, lure him inside. I mean, invite him inside, and then I'll have him. And once I have him, he'll be mine forever.
0: I will say that it's a strange way to display William Apton's behavior at killing children in a similar way that a psychotic yonder ray in an anime kills her multiple beloveds, but perhaps a metaphor is supposed to be looked at… in an emotional level in terms of love. No, no, no. William already had love. We know he had a wife. And we know he had three children. But rejected, neglected, and abused that love consistently. His heart was already empty. But perhaps that is the point, that William Afton's inability to find pleasure or satisfaction in common love, and instead looked into destruction and debauchery as an avenue to feel happiness in his murders, his first kill being his best friend's daughter, giving him a rush of adrenaline and euphoria. He continued to chase it, only to find it less satisfying than before, so he takes another life, then another, another. Stalking, spying, and learning about his victims and their weaknesses and best ways to manipulate them, and always ready to have someone there to potentially take the fall for him, but never able to fully find that same level of euphoric release that he felt when his hands first stripped the blood of adolescent innocence. Or perhaps a story is just a story, and this means absolutely nothing. Like I said before, there isn't really anything obvious to include from the stories, and it could be a troll from Scott, knowing the fans would go in to dig every detail of his game. So he had them dig into every nook and cranny in a cheesy parody anime show. Personally, I wouldn't put it behind him. This is the same man who's supposed to get hacked every every new game release, only for that hack to be a gigantic elaborate troll designed by him. That includes Ultimate Cuss Knight. Funny enough. That ultimate custom troll game has my favorite meta line in the entire realm of FNAF's content. That being Freddy literally screaming at Chica, you have lore relevance. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. I'll be honest, I am left. unsatisfied. After going through all this, not that I don't enjoy going down the rabbit hole with FNAF, but when it is unclear if it all matters, and it really doesn't in this case, at least I believe so. I mean, even if any one of my interpretations or theories wouldn't be inaccurate, does it really matter all that much? It doesn't quite enhance the story or lore in a meaningful way, as it's not required information to know in a lore aspect, it doesn't have an emotional resonance in the narrative one. So before we end off this episode, and leave you seeing behind i want to do something fun. It's entering theory territory, absolutely, major theory territory, but it will be fun. Let's discuss the most infamous mystery in the franchise. I mentioned a couple times previously. Well, let's give it a fair rundown. Let's discuss the identity of Golden Freddy. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Marvel Strike Force is an incredible mobile game that lets you take command of your own team of your favorite Marvel superheroes and villains to take on interdimensional threats like Dr. Doom and Apocalypse in an action-packed, turn-based squad-tactic RPG extravaganza. Embark on an extensive campaign, Completing challenging missions as you fight your way through the expansive Marvel Universe. Collect valuable loot. Enhance the powers of your favorite characters. And level up to acquire new gear. Unlock formidable attacks and abilities. And customize your characters with costumes inspired by their most infamous storylines. Freestyle. Did that get your attention? As we speak, Marvel Strike Force is celebrating its 6 year anniversary. But here's the real kicker. New users signing up through our link and using the promo code MAXPOOL. Get an exclusive treat you'll instantly add the Merc with the Mouth Deadpool to your roster, complete with character shards and anniversary diamond orb and gear. Also, please note that these sponsorships help support the production and the hours we put into creating content for you. So downloading this game using the link in the description and giving it a try would help out this podcast immensely. The game is free, and using the code MAXPOOL gets you a ton of free starting loot, so you got nothing but to gain for giving the game a try right now. Thank you once again to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> Golden Freddy, one of the biggest mysteries in the franchise. Who is the creature behind the golden mask, capable of warping in and out of reality, cause hallucinations wherever he appears, and has the power to trap William Afton in his subconscious to experience tremendous agony and pain? This character has been a mystery ever since the first game, and by the second, it was a even more mystery. And after almost 8 years, there are so many contradictions and different points and threads and weaves that this character has gone under that it's almost impossible to figure out what it's supposed to be or even represent. Honest question here to everyone, okay? I want you to honestly think about this. Is Golden Freddy an MCI victim? Now I would assume most of you would say yes, and alright, let's go with yes. Now, second question, if he is just simply an MCI victim, why is he slash she as powerful as they are? If they are no different than the other four characters who share the same fate as them, why are they that powerful? You don't know that answer, do you? Because even the second game, when the puppet is shown giving the MCI victims of new vests and live on by giving gifts and giving life, Golden Freddy is unique in that he appears as a split second before the game over and he jump scares the player, signifying that he was unique in the regard that he didn't need the public to carry him into his arms. This is actually echoed in FFPS, something I think a lot of people miss. When Henry says those exact same words when addressing his daughter for the final time, the Give Gifts minigame shows up from FNAF 2 on the monitor, but Golden Freddy is absent. Now it isn't like it's unique that characters have been able to come back to life without supernatural support For Charlie and William Manta, for example, live on by the vessel they were most attached to and died in very close proximity of. Michael, in the most jarring and powerful example, lived on his own court that the helpless scooper injected in his body with large amounts of remnant. Give him the strength to repossess his own corpse. So why can't Golden Freddy be like that? Where we died was in close proximity to Fredbear and possessed the suit and it was a very powerful soul. Alright, let's work with that. Now here's a follow up question for you then. How that child have a strong connection with Fredbear? After all, we know the MCI took place in 1985. Fredbear and Spring Bonnie were banned in 1983 and hidden from the public. Why and how would Shadow have a strong connection to a mascot they probably never heard of? You don't have an answer for that one as well, I assume. But I bet you thought of one. It brings us to our first potential most popular suspect to the identity of Golden Freddy, Cassidy. Vashti, according to this theory, was the fifth victim of the MCI, a brunette girl who died by the hands of William and ended up possessing and taking the form of Golden Freddy. This theory began to take root with the release of a book called the Survival Logbook, an interesting activity book that you could buy that was not only supposed to be an in-universe logbook used by Fazbear security guards, but the first page of this book reveals that the owner of this specific logbook is none other than Michael Afton himself. The logbook has some great value in getting into both the and Entertainment Corp persona as well as insight into Michael Atkins' head. This book really did showcase that Michael was basically a grown up kid. An adult who was robbed of his childhood and still has a grown up and have some of his childish habits. It's complete with a dark sense of humor and a penchant from drawing comics and sketches. Side note this book actually gave Mike and his father another parallel. While William himself admits he has a tenacity for the performing arts, Mike seems to have a knack for the visual arts. Fascinating. And I think that's what the logbook was mainly intended for, in my personal opinion. It seemed to be a fun experiment in both getting into Michael's headspace as well as outright confirming his identity in the franchise. A quick reminder in terms of timeline. When the Survival Luck book came out, there was still a minority portion who did not believe Michael was both the night guard or the older brother wearing the foxy mask in FNAF 4. This book reaffirms his identity into non debatable in a variety of ways. For one, it outright confirms that Mike is a security guard on the very first page. So, that's non negotiable. But well, whenever this book references security, specifically Fast Entertainment security, it uses a mascot to represent your local Freddy Fazbear night guard. In this case, every single time they show an image of Fazbear Entertainment Security, the mascot they always use is Foxy the Pirate. Remember how I told you that every member of the actor family had a connection in some form to Fazbear characters? This book tries again and again and again to symbolize that Michael, the night guards, and the older brother are all the same character. The most blatant attempt at this being a cartoon or foxy wearing a security badge and tie is reading a magazine called Screws, Bolts, and Hairpins. The very same magazine Handy mentions in this location, which was Michael's first introduction into the series.
1: Welcome to the first day of your exciting new career. Whether you were approached at a job fair, read our ad in Screws, Bolts, and Hairpins, or if this is the result of a dare, we welcome you.
0: Also exists faded text within the book. Text that was originally not meant to be in the book and look faded in from age, despite the book being, generally speaking, new. In this text, there are hints of another entity trying to get into communication with Michael, or perhaps someone else. As not only does there exist Mike's own notes in the form of red ink, but there also exists text that was clearly supposed to be printed on that somehow was altered. Given this state of FNAF one, and how buildings have changed, shifting your perception of where things are and were on walls to even where it was in front of Michael's face. This could all be explained away by a supernatural degradation, if you'd like. So, where does the name Cassidy come from? Well, believe it or not, the Foxy Grid word search activity. Yeah, bear with me here. So in the book, there exist tally marks, and when you use these tally marks in conjunction with the faded text, you get certain numbers passed off, the page numbers they were on. Now you bring this information to Fox Grid to make a decipher code. Using this decipher code, in the word search of minigame on previous page, one can now cover the hidden name of Cassidy. But except no you don't but to use that same code but you utilize the magazine numbers that I mentioned beforehand the foxy with that foxy when he, you know he had the, the he had the, the magazine and you add eight to it it shifts the names around so then you get Evan a popular fan name for Byte victim so so byte victim's name is Evan after right well, well no because if you ignore all that and don't do any reverse engineering and instead so you use the foxy on the foxy grid as a base the the for same thing code code as your it with it. And it code shifts again, or here's a crazy idea, now this works, and we are trying to really, really hard to make something out of this. The Foxy Grid will probably be the funniest moment in FNAF fandom history to me, because of the absolute insanity of trying to solve a puzzle that no one could really tell for sure was even supposed to be there. Evident on how there were so many methods to finding answers, each one with their own way that was really hard to scrutinize when compared to each other. Are they all extreme long shots? Well yeah, but when everything's a long shot, how can you tell which one's the most accurate? Is it the information it presents? Is it the code solving? How much of the book it uses? How many sources of the book is it using? It's a mess. Now, why would Cassidy even be a name used by so many people and why do they associate it with Golden Freddy? Well, and get ready for this. It's because in the fourth closet, the finale of the novel trilogy, one of William's victims of the MCI, was named Cassidy. Was this the victim that possessed Golden Freddy in the book continuity? No, because it was revealed, surprisingly early on in Silver Eyes, that a kid named Mike Brooks, no association with Michael Apton, a childhood friend of Charlie, was Golden Freddy. Regardless of solution. You have to ask yourself this, and this is my final question to you. Is it narratively satisfying to have William Apton suffer at the hands of a victim we have never heard about? Not Golden Freddy. I'm not talking about Golden Freddy. I'm talking about Cassidy, a character we had to conclude to be a random NCI victim with no other association to him than any other MCI victim had, and one we are practically introduced to in UCN, and one whose identity we had to conclude from, from an outside source of a logbook that we had to use a code method to solve, is it satisfying narratively that a random victim had this much power, caused this much pain to William, and inadvertently leads the events to future
1: games? If you ask me, No. No. It isn't
0: satisfying. This is the classic case of trying to solve an answer by jamming puzzle pieces in, rather than looking at the whole picture to see whether or not the piece you're trying so desperately to make work could even fit there in the first place. And the funniest part? We know it doesn't work from UCN. Remember? They addressed the one you should not have killed? As a male. He's here and always watching
1: the one he shouldn't have killed. I have seen him, the one he shouldn't have killed.
0: And before you say that they're addressing the character of Golden Freddy, aka Fredbear, as he is the male character, no. These are the spirits talking, as seen with the Marinetti, who was a male mascot character possessed by a little girl. She's referred to by female pronouns when characters who know who she is talk about her. Male pronouns only come from gameplay instructions and Fazbear Entertainment employees and management who don't know about the spirits and ghosts of Fazbear Entertainment's past. That's what makes Cassidy so hilarious, in my opinion. It's a theory that has so many hoops of logic to so have to weave your way around to, to get there. And yet it's probably the most popular theory surrounding Golden Freddy. I'll gladly eat my words if i find finding I'm wrong. If I am ever truly discovered, I am wrong. Oz's mission with all of you. I despise Golden Freddy. I do not like him at all. Golden Freddy, in my opinion, is a mystery that should have been answered directly six years ago in Fnaf 4, Sister Location, or FFPS. The fact that it was never answered, in my opinion, was a problem of Scott's unwillingness to write something the fandom may not like. And you know what? I can understand that. I really do. I truly can. The mystery has lingered for so long and has been told over and over again how important it is. The truth to be told, it's been so long I don't care anymore. I do not care who Golden Freddy is. It could be a janitor Freddy's for all I care. It could be phone guy. Sure, why not? I don't care because it's become such an inconsequential mystery up there with the bite of '87. Because truly, what does it matter who Golden Freddy is if he does so little in the overall plot? You could say that makes me a bit of a hypocrite, especially when I asked you if it was narratively satisfying if Golden Freddy is some random character who is the almighty torturer of William. Truth be told, wouldn't any answer by that point be completely satisfying in the long run? Well,. I told you I wanted this to be fun. So I'm going to try to make it satisfying with my own theory. This is my interpretation, and what I believe to be true, about the identity of Golden Freddy. Recall the 8-bit minigames from FNAF 3, ones where every night a new animatronic was led to the back room and systematically were tricked and taken apart by William Afton. After they were all dismembered, a lone spirit popped up, walked towards the back rooms towards William. With all the other spirits present, blocking William in, it is clear the ghost we play as is Golden Freddy. Golden Freddy then spooks William to his core, the first time that franchise this monster shaken visibly afraid, scared for his life. He then dons his spring bonnet suit laughing at his victims for being so easily free. The spring lock snapped shut. William, who had been so elusive and tried to escape death, had met his end of the suit he used to cause so much of it. Only when he was bleeding out and dying of a state of suffering, only then were his spirits and Golden Freddy satisfied. This scene shows us the core of Golden Freddy's character. Colvary's character is one that believes unjust acts should be punished, and those who cause his friends to suffer must pay the price. Like Charlie, he is full of sympathy for the weakest, the unfortunate, the forgotten. He lives in a world where the weakest are crushed and slaughtered, including himself. And when those who destroy or the humiliate the weak must be punished, Golden would will be the one willing to sentence those monsters to death.
1: check inside those suits uh, in the back room I'm gonna try to hold out until someone checks maybe it won't be so bad yeah, I, I, I always wondered what was in all those empty heads back there you know oh no
0: gross. to me this mysterious little bear has always fit the preconception of what a ghost or supernatural entity is like you could and go through walls, can seemingly cause on the spot hallucinations and warp the world around us, and can turn himself invisible along with changing his form. It's quite possible that, with the exception of FNAF's more pathological characters like Nightmare/Nightmare Yon and Old Man Consequences, he is the most powerful human spirit in the franchise. Now, for Michael, the use of Golden has always been to symbolize his guilt. Michael never forgave himself for killing his other brother, despite it being an accident. Quickly going back into the logbook, in response to the question of Do You Have Dream in the faded text of the survival logbook, he drew Nightmare Fredbear in response. For Michael, Golden Freddy is his literal ghost. He is a symbol for the sin he holds himself responsible for, taking form of the very machine that broke his brother's skull on a prank gone wrong. And changing the colors of his attire from purple to black as a symbolic gesture of death now being attached to him, as the entity's mouth always hangs a gate whenever he sees it. Yes, I believe that Golden Freddy is none other than the crying child. The bite victim from Finance Freddy's four, the youngest Afton, and Michael's younger brother. Like I said before. Almost anyone who comes back to life in a vessel has a connection to it, and who has a stronger connection to Fredbear than the Crying Child in FNAF's story. The child who saw that bear as an imaginary friend who guided him even after death. This actually explains Goldenfred's behavior as the story goes on. As a FNAF too, he is like the other children, frightened and scared, and only attacks Mike after William commits another murder spree. This actually could be because he thinks he is William. After all, Elizabeth possibly made the same error in location mistaking Michael for William, as Mike and William look quite identical. They didn't
1: recognize me at first, but then they thought I was you.
0: Or it is possible he does recognize them, but is still angry with him from his birthday. Or he- also, could be terrified of the literal purple man. We don't know. But what we do know is that his behavior changes in four years in the original Finance of Freddy's. Using the logbook as a guide and removing the concept of Cassidy from it, the logbook reveals that communication was happening between the brothers at the time. Communication in which Golden Freddy was constantly asking questions to recognize not only who Michael was, but what were his thoughts and memories. And after the brothers finally had their correspondence, whether Michael knew it was him or not, I believe Bite Victim does in fact forgive his brother after seeing what has happened to him. One of the questions the grandchild asks Mike, what do you see? With a graphic of a window in the logbook, it may or will be Byte Victim making sure that how he sees Michael is correct. A zombified corpse that was a facsimile of the brother he once knew. And once he realizes the pain he has gone through, to me, it is unbelievable that he would harm Mike now. Especially after learning he had done all this because of what he did to him in FNAF 4. That he was trying to make amends. After all, Golden Freddy makes no appearance in FNAF 3. For that point in life, not only has Michael come to grips with his sin, but Golden Freddy has already forgiven Michael, so there's no reason to interfere. The fact that in every game where we play as Michael, Golden Freddy is present in some way, even having stand-ins with Nightmare Fredbear in FNAF 4 and Yendo's sister location. For Shendo and FFPS, since Golden Freddy has no stand-in or presence, Michael was truly ready to die and be reunited with his brother. But despite Michael being forgiven by his brother, his forgiveness also stoked a different emotion in time. In UCN, I believe Byte Victim keeps William alive in anger to show just the amount of pain his father inflicted onto others. Keep in mind, in FNAF 4, By Victim is not scared of the animatronic characters, only the springlock suits. When asked, quote, do you remember what you saw, unquote, by his fridbert plush and knowing who his father is. In the Six ending of FNAF 4, the lines, quote, we are still here, we are still your friends, unquote showcases he had an attachment far beyond imaginary friends to the animatronic characters. And it is echoed when he is united with the other spirits who had managed to live on and who all share the common interest in reclaiming their happiest day that was stolen from them. We know
1: who our friends are,
0: and you are not one of them. Recall back the scene in which Gonfrey's spirit pushes William into putting on the spring trap suit In FNAF 3, In this scene, Bite Victim literally overcomes his fear by literally pushing his abusive father back into those suits that used to terrify him so much. He does this to get revenge not only for his friends but for himself, Michael and Elizabeth. At that point he already wished to see his father suffer. The town that is associated with Golden Freddy the most in UCN, the one you should not have killed. This is usually used as a catalyst to discredit the crime child as being Golden Freddy, but But I like to view it as referencing how Byerickman truly blames William for his death. William's actions always lead to consequences, but what makes him so evil is that usually the ramifications for his actions are told that he does not have to take on. Instead, his children, which close associates, are unknowingly taking the bullet for him. William, by being an abusive and negligent father who practices scummy business practice, murdered children, and... Destroyed so many families, he inadvertently set up the dominoes that would end up killing his own children. Similar to how Elizabeth died from the fun times, while the vehicle in which how they died differ, the machines were built by the same madman who was truly the one responsible for their deaths.
1: He tried to release you. He tried to release us, but I'm not going to let that happen. I will hold you here. I will keep you here. No matter how many times they burn us.
0: Michael had successfully made sure that everyone could find peace. Even Charlie gave the crying child the party he never had. She gave him his happiest day. But that still couldn't make him rest. He wanted to make sure that William suffered the same way that all of his victims did. Which is why all man consequences tried to warn him about his lust for revenge being a farcical. It would never bring him satisfaction. The same way in killing innocents never gave his own father satisfaction. As strange as it is to hear, there is no peace in violence. And with that, I believe today's episode is over. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to stay updated, please consider subscribing, following, or sharing this podcast. It surely helps us broaden our reach. And also consider following us on our Twitter, at Fazbear Podcast, or supporting us on our Buy Me A Coffee page using the link in the description below. Next episode is entirely up to you all again. That's right, we're doing another poll! Our last poll took us in the direction of cleaning the Apton Family Arc, but now that we're done with that, I want to hear what you would all like to explore next. Would you like me to continue our storage trajectory and move to the next game in the timeline that VR help wanted and secure a breach later down the line? Or we could venture into the books for fast fast-bridge fights for a Spell. There are some really good stories in there with a lot of lore and characters. Speaking of which, characters perhaps a few episodes doing a deep dive analysis of the various face of franchises, their story symbolism. That could be really fun. In the description of this episode, you will find a link to our Twitter where you can vote on our poll. And if you want to vote on books or characters, let me know which ones you want me to hit first. With all that out of the way, thank you all again for listening and taking this journey through Scott's original work of the franchise with us. Once again, I have been your host, Nick, and thank you for listening. Have a good night.